You said um a lot in the original one. Guess how many ums I cut out. I just I just want an estimation. How many ums you cut out? Yeah. Like 50. 116. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm Orla. And I'm Sid. And this is The Fate Escape, a podcast where we discuss people who came up from nothing. Sid, who are we talking about this week? This week, we are talking about Michael Faraday. Cool. Now, do you know who Michael Faraday is? I know the name, and yeah. I know that when you tell me who it is, I'm going to be like, oh yeah, sure. Well, no, but this is, I think, quite a weird thing, because a lot of people know the name. I think you might have heard of a Faraday cage, is what a lot of people... But like, so essentially Michael Faraday was a British scientist who lived in the 19th century. And basically the, he, he invented the electrical generator, would be his biggest, um, and electrical induction. Basically, he, he almost founded the electrical age. Love that for him. Um, but he was also, he was born the son of a blacksmith, you know, and sort of beat poverty in London and managed to make his way into the royal society from there. I'm pretty sure my friend Tori used to have a dog called Faraday. That's a cool name for a dog. And that might be a fact I have completely made up. <laughs> I, think... I really hope it is made up, because if no one has a dog called Faraday, I'm calling my dog Faraday. <laughs> so you just go home and rename your dog? Yeah. <laughs> They'll be fine with it. Yeah, I think so. But yeah, no, he was just, um, he was a really impressive guy. And yeah, a fate escape, he came up from nothing and just made these incredible advances. And he was an experimentalist, is what I'd say. And I think before I start, I want to say, I, you know, I really do admire him as, in what he did. But it's not like the sort of Newton or Einstein thing where if he hadn't done it, no one would have done it for a while. Mm. I can recognise that other people were doing similar experiments and stuff. People would have stumbled upon this anyway. These things didn't happen because he did them necessarily. I think the amazing thing is that he was the one who did them. Yeah. Um, there were a lot of people within society at that time who probably had the means, the capacity, the resources yes. to do what he did. But it's really cool, really fascinating and really impressive that he's the one who did them. Yeah. And he was also a huge popularizer of science um, and, you know, was very keen on education. He started the Royal Institution Christmas Lectures. Which, I don't know if you know, but like they run on BBC every year and have done since 1825, I think it was. They, oh, that's cool. They you know, started that. And they're, they're aimed at kids. It's like people, like 4 to 17, essentially. Do you remember um, when me and your mum dragged you to a lecture at the University of Lincoln where we just listened to Caroline Duffy, a wonderful feminist poet, she read like... poems <laughs> about being a woman? And you were one of, I'd say, four men in the lecture hall. And therefore, make a better ally. Um, we thank you for your service. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're very welcome. Um, she does look like the the bad bird off Rio, though. <laughs> she has an incredible. She's a mullet pioneer. <laughs> Mullets are in now, and Caroline Duffy was there first. Excuse me, can you not see my mullet? I think. Would you let me cut you a mullet? No. You've said right. If we get a thousand followers on Instagram, I'm allowed to put you in full drag, right? Yes. If we get five hundred, can I cut you a mullet? No, see, mullet is actually behind full drag. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's a more permanent thing. Sure. Um, um but yeah, shall we? Uh, shall we dive in? I've got the, the my little intro thing. <clears throat> Read me your little intro thing. Sorry, this isn't scripted. So off the top of my head. Mm. For the third child of struggling blacksmith and receiving no education beyond literacy, Faraday would go on to become one of the prominent scientists of his age, challenging the established order of the academic gentry 
and laying the foundations for the electrical age. Sidebar. So you were talking about challenging the academic gentry, and that just reminded me of this really weird argument that broke out in the group chat of um, my year group at my college, um, where it just became into the turned into this weird argument about class, um, and somehow it devolved into somebody challenging somebody else to a jousting competition in quad. Um, and then somebody suggested starting the Wadham College Jousting Society. It was quite a time. And what I'm trying to get at here with this is, we're talking about these things of, like, coming up from nothing. But I tell that story and I think, we have quite a lot of privilege. (laughs) Tonight, we joust! (laughs) I could see you jousting. Like, very... Your hair right now is very... Heath Ledger in A Knight's Tale. Okay, good. That could have gone so many bad directions. <laughs> I love you, Ledger. Uh, so, um, Faraday was born in London on the, twi- whoa, 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 whoa. on the 22nd of September, 1791. But his family had recently moved from Cambria um, because there'd been a drought, essentially, and, you know, his father had gone to seek deployment in London um, with his pregnant wife. So Faraday was actually born in an inn in London before they actually had a place to live. Because Like Jesus! Yes, like Jesus. <laughs> I'm not going to finish that thought. <laughs> I sort of, I had, a, I had an end to that sentence. And I was like, no, pivot to less offensive. And I sort of didn't end up anywhere good. But so he was the third child. He had an older brother and sister. Um, brother Robert, that does, that does come back. And he was baptised into the Sandemanian church. Now, this was an offshoot of... Protestantism, basically. Essentially, they rejected the Anglican Church because they believed it had become too much about sort of stately governments and less about actually following the teachings of the New Testament. An interesting and timely point. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, But, like, this just goes to show there was another level where he wasn't, you know, he wasn't part of the Anglican Church. And this was a big thing then. You know, it sounds like quite a small thing to me. It's just like a blister group. But at the time... He actually, when he received, um, much later in his life, he received an honorary doctorate from Oxford University. And he was among, like, the first four non-Anglicans to be admitted into Oxbridge. That's so cool. Did you know that the head of state of the UK, so the Queen or the King, um, can still no longer be Catholic? Like, it's written into law. I had. I don't have like a lot of information surrounding this fact. I just know that since I think 1689, it's oh, been wow. written into law that our head of state can't be Catholic. I'm just going to ignore this this pivot. So yeah, so the Faradays moved to London. Michael is born, and then before the age of five, they moved to Jacob Mews, and they they live in the property where his dad blacksmiths essentially, and they were really poor, even more so than they should have been. His father struggled with his health a lot and wasn't able to work a lot of the time. And, you know, there are accounts of them struggling to buy food at certain points during his childhood. And, you know, that was sort of life for Faraday. He went to school, but only to learn the three R's. Reading, writing, writing and, and arithmetic. I know. I'd, I'd never heard that before. Did you not? No, it made, oh, my skin crawled. <laughs> it was just, it was arithmetic that got me. Writing, I was like, I can let that slide. Arithmetic. But yeah, so like, and, he, you know, we know he was out of school by the age of 13. Really not much proper formal education but the important thing is he could read and write and yeah and that, arithmetic well hang on I was making a poignant point there Hold on. he that, could read and write yeah I was pausing right I'm gonna do, he could read and write and that would be his ticket out of there 
That was beautiful. That was really good. But I would also really like you to keep my and arithmetic thing because that made me laugh so much. Right. So in 1804, uh, September of 1804, in fact, on his 13th birthday. Oh, that's nice. Faraday became an errand boy for a local bookbinder of the name George Rabot. And part of his job, and I just want to highlight this because this is completely irrelevant detail, but like one of his jobs was delivering newspapers. And then around lunchtime, he would go collect up all the newspapers and deliver them to other people because that's how newspapers worked. I love Toward that. the end of the 18th century. Isn't that amazing? That would be like, such a great way for a crime gang to spread messages and information. That's not what I was thinking. I was thinking, isn't that cute? They were recycling. That's also cute. (laughs) We see where our minds go. Um, Faraday did this for about a year, until in 1805 he was offered a formal apprenticeship by Robo. And now I just want to highlight this character, Robo, for a second, because there are lots of accounts, like, you know, he said sort of before Faraday really became a big name, that, like, he really recognised that Faraday was special. So essentially what Faraday did when he became an apprentice at a bookbinder's, he would read every book that they were going to bind. And he just read and read and read. And we know certain books that went through his hands, and one was the Cyclopedia Britannica, you know, and it, it's known that he read the electricity article in there, he later said, you know, that that got him interested. And another one was Conversations in Chemistry by Jane Marset. And now she was a writer who tailored more toward the young. And they sort of had, like, some experiments and stuff, and Faraday would do these with pots and pans and stuff, following the experiments in this book. And he later said in 1858 in a letter to a friend about the Jane Marcel chemistry book, it gave me my foundation in science. Her book came to me as the full light in my mind. That is incredibly beautiful, as is the fact that he used a primary source. That's lovely. This is full of them. Sexy. Um, Like another one, and I was talking about how, you know, Ribot recognised Faraday's you know, great intellect. I mean, he later wrote in 1813 for publication to a friend. So 1813, you know, Faraday would have been, what, 22 then? Um, This is before he made a big, and I quote, again, another primary source, an account of the progression of genius in an apprentice. Oh, I love Uh, that. I love that. Yeah, so we sort of see Rebo was like this driving force in Faraday's life because he encouraged Faraday to copy from the books, the texts, the illustrations. He encouraged him to go see machinery in action around London. You know, there were pumping works and like lots of new machinery was being built around then. This is the beginning of the industrial age, really. And he also like asked customers if Faraday could see their private art collections. Um, like he really, you know, sort of pushed Faraday. That's incredible. Um, That's kind of, I mean, in a, in a very different way, kind of similar in a very different way. Uh, to patronage in sort of medieval and early modern times and the idea of somebody with higher, whether it be material or cultural capital, championing someone. But it's a much less self-serving version of patronage because the idea of patronage in reality in early modern Europe was to demonstrate the status of the people who were providing the patronage because they were like, fuck yeah, look at me. I can afford to have this incredibly talented person in my court whereas it seems like the way this this doesn't directly benefit Rubo, but like you know he, there's no ulterior motive that you can have for this he just genuinely saw something in someone and i think that's a really that's something that i've been trying to look out for in my research for this is not just the person who found their way from their beginnings to what they ended up becoming but also the people along the way who didn't necessarily have to help them 
and also weren't necessarily people of particularly great means, yeah. but still did because they saw something in them. I think that's like a really interesting and really wonderful aspect of a lot of these stories. Yeah, and there's that thing I was talking about, it's hard work and luck. And this really falls into the, the luck category that they came across these people. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, just huge shout out to George Rivo. Um, yeah, so and we have evidence, you know, in 1809, Faraday began a collection of notices, occurrences, events, etc. relating to the arts and sciences. And he connected this from magazines, newspapers, just, you know, basically filing together, copying out things he found really interesting. And he called it the Philosophical Miscellany. Oh, uh, lovely. And yeah, it was written by hand and, you know, illustrated with pen and ink drawings. And in 1810... Faraday starts going to a series of lectures being delivered by John Tatum in John Tatum's home. And uh, he was a local silversmith. And who... ancestor of incredible actor, star of the Step Up movie, Channing Tatum. Uh, there actually is a professional, I think, wrestler called John Tatum. Because like, I was Googling his name, like trying to find out what he was, and I was like, that's not right. <laughs> but yes. much, like the, uh, much like Genghis Khan, or Genghis Khan, depending on who you ask, the lineage of Mr. Tatum spreads far. Who says, who says Gen- Genghis Khan? I listened to a really interesting... I cannot remember who it was by, but I listened to a really interesting podcast about Genghis Khan. And the very, very knowledgeable presenter said Genghis no, throughout. See, I think you never say a soft G, because even if you're right, you sound like a douche. And my example would be, it was a, an In Our Time podcast, which is a BBC Radio 4 podcast, and it was about uh, fungi. And about half the people on it, half you know the who's professors, a fun guy. they called it fungi. And like they might be right, but no one wants them to be. But yeah, so 1809, Faraday started going to lectures by John Tatum, who was a local silversmith who'd been educated in the sciences. And they were held in the top room of his house. And like Faraday made detailed drawings of, uh, of John Tatum's of this setup. And that's another thing to note. Faraday made extensive notes there of his life, um, which is quite helpful when you're researching. But yeah, so this cost a shilling, which his elder brother Robert paid for, um, who was now taking over as a blacksmith um, after Faraday's father died in 1810. So Robert was now kind of the head of the family, and he paid the one shilling price for Faraday to go to these lectures, which I think was jolly nice of him. Yeah, that's, um, a, that's a cute move. But again, Faraday made extensive notes of these lectures. That was what he did. He, he saw these things, he copied them down, he drew the diagrams. John Tatum also started a sort of break-off from these lectures called the City Philosophical Society, where he invited certain men from the audience to come and present their own lectures in a different meeting each week and they'd share ideas and stuff, um, which Faraday was a part of. Yes, he was a misogynistic bastard. <laughs> As I can't say, and I thank the first one of those yeah. men who invited a woman to speak. Uh, yes, go ahead, Ola. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you. Yeah, yeah, worth it. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but yeah so the lectures covered electricity galvanism optics geology mechanics chemistry astronomy pretty much everything and what you've got to remember science at this time there wasn't a big divide between the amateur and the professional it was founded very much in experimentation and this was things that a lot of people could do and so tatum's lectures in his house had a lot of experiments which you know showed and proved certain things and like you know, he'd be electrocuting frogs to show, you know, how that affected the nervous system and stuff. Um, and so this is where Faraday really got any education he did get was really from these sort of informal public lectures in the top of a silversmith's house where he just, you know, did experiments and talked about them. That's so interesting. I think universities, I mean, worldwide but across the UK, should be doing that. Obviously, I understand that they're businesses yeah. and I understand that they 
I don't understand that they're businesses. They shouldn't be, but I understand <laughs> that they... You accept that they are. I accept the fact that currently they are businesses. But I just think, you know, because I have, you know, university cards. So if I want to, I can just walk into exam schools, which is where most of the lectures at my uni are held. And if I see a lecture that I think is interesting, just go and listen to it. I, a bunch of friends and I went to a really, really fucking cool lecture series about feminism and philosophy um, by a tutor called Amir Srinivasan, who I would like to wife me. And... It was incredible. And we just had the opportunity to walk into those and listen to them. And I felt so privileged and so lucky. And I just think that even if it's to no end, people try to have access to that information and access to that knowledge if they want it. Um, I would just shout out here to the University of Lincoln for the public lectures they used to hold. Absolutely. Um, well, it still does, as far as I know. But like, I really enjoyed them when I was you know, 17, 18 before uni. But anyway, so in 1812, um, we both showed Faraday's notes from these lectures to a customer called William Dance, who was the son of a proprietor at the Royal Institution. Um, and just brief off, off spin here, the Royal Institution was an organisation that was set up in 1799, basically with the aim of introducing new technologies and new science, addressing it to the general public. I think one of the founders called it an institution for diffusing knowledge. So this thing you're saying, essentially, by public outreach in science and such he was very impressed with the notes that Faraday had made and you know again saw something in him and gave him four tickets to go see lectures by Sir Humphrey Davy who was professor of chemistry at the Royal Institution and was one of the leading scientists at the time and we know that Faraday attended his lectures from March to April uh, 1812 and these were hugely popular things like there are accounts of the Royal Institution being filled to the rafters and one of the things that Davy was quite well known for was nitrous oxide, which he'd been, you know, keen in discovering and uh, essentially experimenting is with. Is that laughing gas? Which is laughing gas. And so um, one of the things he'd like invite a random member of the audience down to the front and cause them to like end up in hysterical fits of laughing. Two thousand followers on Instagram, and we'll do an episode on laughing gas. Uh, is that legal? I don't know. <laughs> we might do an episode on laughing gas. We can neither deny or confirm Live it from the dentist. But yeah, so these were hugely popular things, and like. I, I don't know, it sort of shows that sort of public interest in science that was growing at the time. But Faraday, he sort of, he went to these lectures and he, he made the notes again and the drawings of the, the experiments and stuff, and then he replicated them at home. He did his best to do these experiments again. Incredible. Um, it's just showed he didn't really accept facts very easily unless they were, it was like a, he felt the need to show these things and mm. to, to find out that they were true. Um, which, of course, is very helpful for an experimental uh, physicist, which he was not yet though. He was still an apprentice, and that ended in October of eighteen twelve. And since then, um, there have been no good paid apprenticeships in the UK. Too true. <laughs> Far too true. But that's okay because our education system steers everyone away from them. Huzzah! It's a great point. It's a great point. <laughs> but yeah, so Faraday had expressed in letters to friends at the time that he basically didn't want to be a bookbinder. But he tried to like find some jobs in science and stuff, and they required him to have a knowledge of mathematics and mechanics, which he just didn't have. And, you know, he, he never, in any point in his career, he, he wasn't a mathematical scientist. This wasn't something he was very good at, probably due to the lack of education. Um, like, that's kind of a harder thing to teach yourself without, mm. you know, the proper materials for it and stuff. But uh, As opposed to history, which is shockingly yeah. easy to teach yourself. But, yeah, so he essentially couldn't, you know, apply to any jobs he wasn't getting them. He wrote in 1812 to Joseph Banks, who was the president of the Royal Society, 
I said, just a clarification point here, Royal Institution was recently founded in 1799 and was aimed at addressing science to the public. Royal Society was in the name. It's the Society of Scientists, the world's oldest and most renowned. It's got so many Nobel laureates. It's just, you know, you know, fancy pants scientists. It's founded in the mid-17th century, right? I don't know. It's old. But like you think of any famous scientists, FRS, Fellow of the Royal Society, you know, bigwigs. But so essentially he wrote to the president of the Royal Society asking, you know, for any employment, basically, no matter how menial. Um, but he didn't receive a reply. Yeah, but essentially Faraday couldn't find a job in science. And so he, after his apprenticeship ended, he started a, a job as a journeyman bookminder for Henry de la Roche. And that's a, you know, journeyman. It's a basically someone who learns a trade and then goes to work for someone else with that trade as opposed to being an outright bookbinder. He, he doesn't... He's a guffer. Yeah, he, he bookbinds for someone. He's not set up on his own as a bookbinder. Bookbinding for king and country. Yeah, so he goes to work with uh, Henry de la Roche and he moves back in with his mother, having lived with uh, uh, George Ribot during the apprenticeship. And yeah, so he's he's quite dissatisfied with his life and he started his job as a German bookbinder. But later in 1812, encouraged by Ribot and another friend of his uh, by the name of Abbott, I think, Faraday sent his notes of Davy's lectures to Sir Humphrey Davy himself. And Faraday, being a bookbinder, bound these notes into a book which, you know, he's apparently very he proud of, like, to do. Yeah, the bound gold writing on the, yeah, like, sort of made it fancy. And so Humphrey Davy met with Faraday, um, this is late 1812, um, and he told him that there was no position for him at the moment, basically, but he would let him know if anything came up. Again, That's usually an outright no. Yeah, he's not qualified. But then, luckily for Faraday, Humphrey injured his eye in a laboratory experiment. Basically, a beaker blew up, and a chunk of glass went into his eye. I dislike calling that lucky in any way. Well, it's lucky for Faraday. I think also, I, you know, I don't feel too bad for Humphrey, considering it was, I can't remember, it was some sort of nitrous something, are they? It was, it was yeah, I don't know. It was something. <laughs> but, like, he, he'd been one of the key discoverers of it. And then, um, essentially, a Frenchman had, like, discovered that it was highly explosive in some cases, and the Frenchman lost a finger and an eye, like, outright, in an explosion, and basically wrote to Subfrey Davy. And with great difficulty, I should imagine. Um, and said, you know, I found this amazing thing. It's highly explosive, you know, for, with this compound and this thing. And then Toby Davy was quite protective, I think, of his substance. And so he wanted to replicate the results. And once again, he you, blows up the container. You heard it here first, gang. We have no respect for Humphrey Davy at this podcast. <laughs> I, I feel quite bad for him. Um, and we'll get on to that later. Okay. Um, but yeah, so Davy's eyesight was quite badly damaged. Um, and so he employed Faraday part-time as an amanuesis. As a who? An amanuesis. And what does one of those do? Yeah, I didn't know it either. Um, it's basically someone who, uh, it's a scribe, basically. So Faraday, you know, some days of the week would essentially write down what Humphrey Davies said. Every single person I know who works as a secretary, I'm going to call them and tell them to start referring to themselves as whatever that fancy word was. Amanuesis. It's yeah. quite a nice word, yeah. Hey, um, I'm Debbie. I'm an amanuesis. <laughs> But then Davy's eyesight healed in early 1813. But lucky for Faraday, there was another extraordinary event in that there was a fight in the Royal Institution. Like a, uh, fist, like a, like a fisticuffs? Fisticuffs in the Royal Institution in February 1813. I'm just imagining uh, these skinny little nerds in wigs just, like, batting at each other. not this nerds. But yeah, and a, a lab assistant was fired um, for punching someone, I guess. Jeremy Clarkson style. And Faraday was hired in his place um, under David's recommendation. And he had accommodation at the Institute. And this is really, you know, here from the bookbinding is really where his life took a great turn. And this is possibly, 
I wasn't the biggest hurdle he overcame, but this is the biggest stroke of luck, that jump. Yeah. That that series of events that got him there. But I think um, it's it's in some ways unfair to him to just call it luck because mm. from what you've been saying, he's been fighting for this in every way that he could yeah. up until this point. It's just that he didn't have a lot of resources. But you can't imagine there's any scenario in which he could have been even like vaguely considered that for that position if he hadn't but, been expressing how much he wanted yeah, it. Yeah, but this, so I say luck. I don't do that to discredit him at all. I just do that to say if 10 people had done this at the time, he still probably would have been the only one getting in. Yes, you know, absolutely. Like, just due to the fact that these things happen this way. And so he was hired as a lab assistant and he initially appears to have been mainly Humphrey Davies' assistant. Um, so <laughs> Making now, sure he keeps that other eye. Well, this is where it gets a bit... Because it feels a little bit like Faraday was exploited by Humphrey Davy, And now Humphrey Davy. He, he becomes, you know, not too long after this, the president of the Royal Society. But so you see how influential a figure he would have been. He was this really, really renowned scientist. And essentially, Faraday wasn't. He wasn't even a gentleman. I mean, these halls where science was almost the plaything of rich kids, you know? He never wants to open the door for a lady. Yeah. <laughs> I guess not. And yeah, it's... Davy, I don't think, was harsh to Faraday, but Faraday was definitely living in his shadow. And, you know, for the meantime, this is a problem more later on, but at the moment he's just his lab assistant. In October 1813, Davy invited Faraday on a tour of Europe with him and his wife to act as a scientific assistant. Um, basically, they went around, like, a bunch of, like, uh, different laboratories around the world and met with people. It feels odd to tag him along. I bet his wife was like, I thought we were going on holiday. Well, Sir Humphrey Davy was a respected gentleman, and so he had a staff come with him on this tour. And that, that appears to have been a bit of an issue in that, so Humphrey Davy's wife treated Faraday as a servant rather than a scientific advisor. Yeah, I don't know, like, I think Faraday was quite disgruntled with how he was treated by Davy's wife. And so, yeah, that, that didn't go great, but it was cut short after 18 months, apparently that short, <laughs> um, because Napoleon was dicking about, basically. He did uh, tend to dick about yeah, a bit. He escaped from exile. How do you escape from exile, by the way? He was unescaped. He, well, he was exiled on an island. It wasn't really... Right. You kind of just need a boat, don't you? I think it was like Elba or something where he was exiled. I didn't write it down. It wasn't worth it. I just put Napoleon <laughs> escaped. Um, and like, you know, war was with France, so it ended early. Just some other details here to fill in. In 1816, he started assisting the delivery of lectures, but very much as a lab assistant in lectures rather than giving lectures. In 1820, as I said, Humphrey Davy became the president of the Royal Society. Um, in 1821, Faraday marries Sarah Bernard, who's a fellow Sandemanian which, if you remember, is the church that Faraday was brought up in. And again, I'd like to emphasise religion was such a big part of Faraday's life. Um, actually, later in his life, while an eminent scientist, he became a deacon of the Sandemanian church. Um, right, so the 12th of June, 1821, Faraday married Sarah Bernard. I don't have a huge amount on their marriage, to be honest, mainly because, there was, again, there was a lot to Faraday's life, and I've looked at a bit of the science, but, you know... All accounts say it was a very faithful marriage. For um, the time, not knowing a lot about their marriage is probably a good thing. It probably just means they weren't, like, hitting each other all the time. Well, he was... Yeah, Busy with science. Yeah, but, like, we know basically the fact that he was completely faithful to her because it was a strong part of his religion, and that was a huge part of his life. Although we do know he had quite friendly letters with Ada Lovelace later in his oh, life. Oh, that's cute. Which I just... is quite cool, but, like, you know, they, they were always a little bit flirty, but then every now and then he'd be like, whoa there! I just Google image search Michael Faraday so I knew what he looked like. He's and a very he attractive man. Beautiful, floppy, posh boy hair, and I would be faithful to that beautiful, floppy, posh boy hair. Well, actually, you know, he was good friends with um, some of the people who were pioneering in photography at the time, because it was quite a new thing. And uh, 
thought you were going to say pioneering and posh boy hair. And I was like, no. um, <laughs> one of my favourite industries. But yeah, so he had his photograph taken a lot. Basically, everything lined up, so we have a lot of information on Faraday, which is nice. But essentially, around this time, Faraday starts gaining a rep. He's doing a lot of work for Davy, and he's establishing himself as a chemist in the Royal Institution. And in 1821, Faraday was asked by a friend to review the published work on electromagnetism. And so Faraday did what he'd always done. He repeated the experiments, and he started playing around with them. And in September of 1821, he discovered electromagnetic rotations, which was that a wire carrying a current can be made to move around in a consistent rotation around a magnet. Um, and so this is basically the principle behind the electric motor. So, big wig stuff. Thank you for my car, Michael Faraday. And yes, yeah, so this this essentially was a huge turning point for Faraday. Again, even more accepted, he was elected as a member, a fellow rather, of the Royal Society in January of 1824 at the age of 32. But this is the sort of time where he starts not actively clashing with Davy, but he's still stuck basically working as Davy's assistant, even though he's a fellow of the Royal Society, even though he's an established scientist of his own right. And so various other things work around, uh, happen around these times. Faraday's involved in the founding of the Anthenaeum, which is like a basically a, a sister society to the Royal Society, mm -hmm. for like non-scientist members it was, to keep the Royal Society just full of scientists, was the idea. Important. Um, yeah, just like gatekeep girl boss. Uh, sure. <laughs> um, but, you know, Faraday was their first secretary, but he really didn't like this and jumped out soon. And uh, this is the bit where I feel sorry for Davy, because between 1824 and around 1826, uh, Faraday working for Davy, the Royal Navy had been having some problems with the copper-bottomed ships, in that they were corroding in the salt water. And so essentially you'd have, well, they would be corroding, it would be wearing away the metal because you'd get copper salts forming on the bottom of the ships. And so Davy was essentially tasked with solving this problem. And, you know, he thought about it, he solved it, and essentially he came up with a solution to zinc plate the uh, copper bottoms so that there'd be no reaction with the water. And Faraday had a lot of the experiments and stuff. And then in about 1824, these were installed on ships, and like, there was very little corrosion. Hooray, Davy, celebrated because of this. And now, I'd like to take a moment here and just say, this worked. It stopped the corrosion of the bottom of the ships. But Incredible. no corrosion meant no poisonous copper salts, which meant barnacles and seaweed and mollusks growing on the bottom of the ships and therefore acting to erode the ships, making the situation worse than it was before. Silly little goose. Well, and now Humphrey Davy essentially got a really bad rep for this and like things turned on him massively when... And this is, I sort of feel bad because it wasn't really his fault. You know, he sort of, he did stop the corrosion on the ships. Mm. It's not his fault. Sea life had a different plan. But then because of this and, you know, him being blamed so heavily and for some reason Faraday sort of being ignored in this, quite nicely for him, Davy resigns um, as president of the Royal Society in uh, November of 1827. And this gives Faraday a lot more freedom. He's no longer got to work as, well, let me try that again. This gives Faraday more freedom because it lessens... Davy's influence inside the academic institutions at the time. Mm -hmm. Davy's still a practicing scientist, and Faraday's still doing work for him, but Davy has less of a grip on Faraday. And you find that a lot of what Faraday does around now is trying to trying to embed himself as an invaluable member of the societies around him. Like essentially to get out of Davy's control. So he becomes in eighteen twenty one he became the assistant superintendent of the house for the Royal Society, which basically means he's responsible for the upkeep of the buildings. Which, you know, obviously isn't a very like, you know, a uh, very fancy position, but it means that he's indispensable to But the receiving an official position within that 
exactly. places him squarely um, as a member more than just somebody who works there for yeah. somebody who is. And in 1825, he was appointed director of the laboratory. So again, still gaming, but still sort of under Davy. And like even around this time, even after 1827, he was working on optical, optical glasses for Davy, essentially. And it wasn't until 1829, when uh, Davy died, that Faraday was really free to do his own thing. Mm-hmm. But before that, very key point in his life, sorry, now I'm jumping about the timeline a bit here, but in 1825, Faraday established the Christmas Lectures for Children and the Friday Evening Discourses for Royal Institution members. Incredible. Um, I think that's such a wonderful thing, is that he recognised that his that he essentially locked into access to education through the apprenticeship he ended up getting because he had access to these books and stuff and he chose instead of distancing himself from that to try yeah. and provide that to other people. Yes, for the Christmas lectures. For the Friday evening discourses, because these were for Royal Institution members. Mm. But you can like it's like a membership to be part of the Royal Institution. This isn't for like academic society, but you know, this is the public but you pay to be part of the Royal Institution. And so it you know, that side of it is was to raise some funds because as superintendent of the house there wasn't really enough funds to keep keep everything going. They were struggling with that. And these lectures provide a way to do for that. And the Christmas lectures being available to everyone basically they show everyone what it's like to be a part of the Royal Institution. Uh, yeah, the Royal Institution. And then if you pay for that, to be part of the Royal Institution, you get to come to these Friday evening discourses. King of promo. Yeah, it was quite clever. You know, as you said, we can't discount the fact that he came from, you know, from the background he did. He was almost giving back. But yeah, no, he, as you say, King of promo. He invited lots of journalists to these Friday evening discourses, just raising public awareness to increase support, essentially. I mean, it worked. Royal Institution memberships increased loads and again solidified Faraday's position within that as a contributing and very valuable member. Yeah, so in 1829, again to this end, he accepted a position as a professor of chemistry at Woolwich Royal Military Academy, which is a position he would hold until 1851, to some extent or another. I don't know if he was actively participating in it till then, um, but you know, he still held the position. Um, and around this time, he became a key advi- uh, scientific advisor to the British government as being one of the leading scientists and worked on some quite bizarre problems through this, but seemed to quite enjoy them. You know, mm. he was basically free at this point, doing his own thing. And like, <laughs> for the government, he worked on investigating the contamination of oatmeal on prison transport ships, uh, on the treatment of dry rot, and the use of lightning rods on ships, just to name a few. That's so quite cool. A, eclectic mix. But yeah, so after Davy's death in uh, 1829... Faraday starts actively researching electricity and magnetism uh, and the correlation between his two. It was known there was some relation between them before his time, but this is when he really starts to get engaged with that and follow his own research. And in August 1831, Faraday discovered magnetic induction. Um, What's magnetic induction? Well, I'm so glad you've asked. Um, Essentially, it's the idea of magnetic induction, or induction in general is uh, creating a current from one wire to another wire without electrical conduction. So you're not electrocuting a piece of metal between them to transfer the energy. You're doing this another way, basically. Cool. And so magnetic induction, um, I'm just going to describe the apparatus used, and I'm not going to let you see it, just because I want to see if this works for the thing. If not, we'll cut it out. Um, but essentially what he did is he had an iron ring um, and he wrapped a wire in a coil around one side of this, and to this wire he attached a switch and a battery, so a power source and a switch, um, and he wrapped a wire around the other side of this room, um, and he put 
essentially another cord of wire on the other end of that wire. So it's coiled around the ring and it's got a coil as part of that loop of wire on the other side. And he put the needle of a compass, a, a compass by that uh, coil of the second wire. Now, these wires were all insulated, so there was no electricity passing through the metal ring. Um, but he noticed that if he turned on the switch on the first coil and basically gave that first coil a current on the battery, um, there would be a flicker in the needle of the compass. And essentially what this is now, we can say that a current started to flow in the first circuit, which creates a change in the magnetic field of the ring, which induces a current in the second circuit. But it's change of current that leads to change in the magnetic field, which leads to current in the second one. And once the circuit's made, there's no change in current, it's consistent. And so there's no change in the magnetic field, and so the current stops in the second one. Um, and the needle of the uh, compass goes back to normal, because there's no force on it. I drew some really cool circuits in GCSE physics, so we can both do interesting <laughs> shit, Mr. Faraday. I agree. But yes, no, <laughs> this, this was a huge thing. Um, and eventually, in fact, when he died, there would be a statue of him holding an induction ring that was seen at the time as his, his big thing. By October, he discovered how to generate an electric current by moving a magnet in and out of a coil of wire. Um, and by the end of October that year, he'd created the world's first electrical generator. And this is the second to last thing I'm going to try to describe to you. Okay. Um, and now just to give a simple idea of what this looked like. Imagine two prongs. Got it. No. Scrap that, scrap that. Oh, but I had such beautiful prongs. Okay, imagine <laughs> the brakes on a bike wheel. Yes. Yeah, one on either side, sort of with the wheel spinning between. Um, now, if you imagine one of these as the south pole of a magnet and the other one as the north pole of the magnet, mm -hmm. um, you have a magnetic field going across the rim of that bike wheel. Now imagine the bike wheel is a gigantic copper disc. <laughs> this is basically Faraday's first electrical generator. And he stuck a handle on the copper disc, had a wire going into the centre of the copper disc, and a contact on the outside of the copper disc, because mm -hmm. there was a essentially potential difference between the centre of the uh, copper disc and the uh, rim when Classic. he spun it. He spun this disc between the two magnets, and that was the first electrical generator in the world. Woo! Yeah, so big strides for Faraday. Get um, it, gal. And now I think it's worth just commenting on here, I don't know, how pivotal these... I don't know, not discoveries, almost inventions were. Mm -hmm. um, I guess ma electromagnetic induction, um, the one with the, the ring and the cores on the inside, was a discovery. And actually, that setup that I described to you earlier, that's what would now be called a transformer. Um, oh, like the Michael Bay classic starring Shia LaBeouf. Not like that one, although it could be used in building transformers. <laughs> Beautiful job. Yeah, but that like so that was effectively the world's first transformer. But he didn't make it to that end. Bumblebee's granddad. But, you know, electrical generation. This this was the foundation of the electrical age. Did you like my pause? <laughs> <laughs> du -nu -nu -nu. <laughs> so what Faraday did next was to set out to prove that electricity from magnetic induction was identical to other forms of electricity. For example, lightning, static. 
he wanted to show that they were all the same type of electricity. And in doing this, and in experimenting around this, he found flaws in the established fluid theory of electricity, which was the prevailing theory at the time, which was that electricity was caused by the flow of a fluid in objects that connect electricity. Yeah. Uh, Well, I don't know. (laughs) You know, it wasn't an illogical conclusion, but Faraday started to find places where this just simply didn't hold true. And so started going against this established theory. So just to fill out some other details that were happening in his life around this time, it was uh, in 1832, so just the next year that Faraday became the deacon of a Sandemanian church. Also in 1832 was when Oxford offered Faraday um, the honorary doctorate. And again, one of the first four non-Anglicans admitted to Oxford. And in October 1834, so jumping ahead a couple of years now, Faraday published his 10th volume of Experimental Researches. Um, which, you know, was this work on essentially providing evidence against the fluid theory of electricity. Mm-hmm. Um, and his first had been on induction work, so just in 1831. So this was his 10th volume in about three years. Uh, three or four years. So, uh, Damn, can he ghostwrite my essays for uni? How, you know, how does he write? Like he's running out of time, you know? <laughs> In 1833, he became the Falerian Professor of Chemistry at the Royal Institution. Which the was, who? Professor of Chemistry? I, I looked this up. Falerian, which is named after someone whose surname was Fuller. Okay, that makes yeah, sense. I was like, a word I don't know. That's cool. Okay. Um, but this was a position that was essentially made for him. So he was the first Falerian Professor of Chemistry. Um, and he held this position to his death. In December 1835, he constructed a 12-foot timber-framed box covered in wire and insulated by glass from the floor in the lecture theatre of the Royal Institution. Just for bants, or...? No. See, he noticed that when the box was charged, and he sort of had a theory about it, when the box was charged, so electrical current passing over it, anyone inside was fine. They were insulated from it. Um, You wouldn't want to be the first guy to test that out, would you? No, you would not. But this was the Faraday cage. Which is, I feel like a lot of people might have heard of a Faraday cage. I think there's an idea, there's, you know, it's in a lot of pop culture. But essentially, Faraday cages now, they're used to protect like sensitive equipment from radio waves and, you know, MRI machines from phone signals and stuff. Basically, to protect things from electromagnetic radiation. Uh, I don't know if there's an easy way to describe how a Faraday cage kind of works. Um, but just to give an idea, if, if you imagine a metal or conductive material surrounding a person and then an electric field across it, you've got a positive side and a negative side. Mm-hmm. Now, the metal is made up of positive ions with negative electrons floating around all over the place. When this current is applied, all the electrons are attracted to the positive side, leaving just the positive ions on the negative side. And so, looking at the boundaries of this metal around the person, if you imagine on the left-hand side, you've got the positive electric field going across it, but then a negative barrier made by electrons. Mm-hmm. And on the right-hand side, you've got a positive barrier made by the ions and then the negative side of the electric field. And so there's no electric field inside the box, and it, it stops there and carries on. And again, this went against the ideas of the fluid theory of electricity. Okay. Um, and so for Faraday, this sort of confirmed his thought that uh, electricity was a force rather than a fluid. So, 
that was a big deal, basically. And these are that's sort of like the main discoveries of his life. He showed some other things, you know, through his life, different experiments and stuff. But like these were the main ideas, but he didn't have the mathematical foundation to sort of develop these theories. Mm. I mean, this wouldn't happen until the late 1850s. When wow, okay. She, well, but again, so this is like 20 years later when James Clerk Maxwell um, essentially develops the maths for these theories. And the Maxwell equations, you might have heard of them, but they're like equations describing magnetism um, and electricity, how it works on a fundamental level. And essentially confirms all these theories that Faraday had. I'm going to be honest, as you said, I've not heard of them. Okay, but my point is Faraday couldn't do this himself, but in them being confirmed and Maxwell creating these equations off that Faraday's theories, this led to the invention of radio. Okay, Um, okay, cool. And it sort of, it showed Faraday's theories that electricity and magnetism were like oscillations in the same medium Mm. and that light was also involved in this, which was from another series of experiments he did in 45, replicating something else. And this was his theory. These were all intertwined. And this was shown in the late 1850s, and I say much later on, led to the invention of radio. That's um, incredible. Yeah. Now for just, just one quick personal anecdote. Um, in 1835, Robert Peel, have you heard of Robert Peel? No. Oh, well, he was a prime minister of, oh, uh, of wow. Great Britain. But he offered a Faraday a pension from the civil list, mm-hmm. but died shortly afterwards. And so Lord Melbourne took up the offer, then met up with Faraday to discuss this. And he used profanity, talking about his contempt for the concept of pensions. A typical attitude from Lord Melbourne. But typical. Fa- Faraday walked out the meeting. Because, well, profanity, basically. You know, he's a deeply religious man. He found this so insulting and he demanded a written apology, (laughs) uh, which Lord Melbourne refused to give until the king stepped in and forced him to give the apology to Faraday. Um, Oh, my God. Which really worked. But that, like, really increased Faraday's esteem in the uh, the public eye. That's incredible. (laughs) And, like, you know, increased his his notoriety. And around this time, he was really well-known. He was a household name because of these public lectures, which were... (laughs) <laughs> funny enough seen as like almost popular entertainment at the time like celebrities would go to these things and so he was a really you know he was a household name but this this sort of cemented his fame um but toward the end of the 1830s Faraday fell ill and he had sudden attacks of vertigo and unsteadiness and started to notice a deterioration of his memory yeah and he sort of had memory problems from then until he died that's awful yeah, with them, you know, getting worse toward when he died. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll get back onto this later. But it wasn't dementia, would be my... Teaser? Yeah, my, my teaser trailer. Okay, so I've spoken a lot about how Faraday believed in showing the value of science to the public. And to this end, the Royal Institution started a series of lectures called Lectures on Education. And Faraday delivered the second of these in May 1854, chaired by Prince Albert. Oh, Albie! Who went on to regularly chair events at the Royal Institution. And I just as a side note here, Faraday isn't really actively researching at this point. Mm-hmm. He's sort of, you know, still experimenting a bit, playing around with things, but, you know, he, his memory isn't great, and he's sort of struggling his health a bit. No but thoughts, he just was, vibes. He was still doing these lectures. And in 1855, Prince Albert brought his two sons to see Faraday's Christmas lectures. Squad. And as a result of this, offered Faraday a house on the Hampton Court estate. 
Um, and like until this point, Faraday had lived in a flat in the Royal Institution with his wife. Um, they never had any kids. And so Faraday lived there from 1858 to his death on August 25th, 1866, at the age of 75. Um, and apparently he died in the chair in his study and was buried in a simple plot in Highgate Ceremony uh, Cemetery sorry, with a simple funeral because he requested one. And this was, you know, it's well accounted that he remained quite a humble man. And I think this was because of his grounding in religion, to be honest. As yeah. much as I'm not a fan of religion, you know, that was a big thing for him. Um, but I just, I'd like to talk about his illness a little bit. Sure. And I said there wasn't dementia earlier. 1839 was when this first started troubling him and he didn't die till uh, 66. Mm-hmm. So we're talking more than 20 years. Yeah. Dementia wouldn't, he wouldn't have lasted that long, basically. Um, and so there's been many theories through the years as to, you know, what caused his, you know, th- these things. Mercury poisoning was one suggestion. Another was amnesic syndrome. Essentially, it's basically amnesia, but amnesia's portrayed ridiculously in pop culture because it's not forgetting your past. Amnesia is struggling to hold on to what's happening at the moment mm-hmm. um, and forming newer thoughts. And I think the current accepted one at the moment is functional cognitive disorder, is what they think he had, which essentially means that he had difficulties with memory and thinking, not because of brain cells deteriorating, as in uh, Alzheimer's, mm-hmm. but rather rather a problem with how the brain is working, which could be like a chemical or structural alteration, which might again link to mercury poisoning. Sure. Um, and I've got just some quotes here from Faraday in letters that he wrote to friends, you know, toward the end of his life. One from December 1863. Um, it says, My words totter, my memory totters, and now my legs have taken to tottering. I am altogether a very tottering and helpless thing. And oh, I love that. In the same letter, again and again I tear up my letters, for I write nonsense. I cannot spell or write a line continuously. Whether I shall recover this confusion, I do not know. I will not write any more. That's so sad because his intelligence and his passion for knowledge and learning was the thing that had got him to the place he'd ended up. And so hearing him, even if he wasn't, feel as though he was losing it and not necessarily know the true impact that he would ultimately have had is really hard. That's really upsetting. Yeah. Um, And now there's just one more quote I'd like to read to you, which is... I think possibly from slightly before that, but I kind of wanted to end my thing on Faraday with it, Um, which he wrote in the last four years of his life to a fellow scientist who was a close friend of his, August de la Rive. Having no science to talk to you about, a motive which was very strong in former times is now wanting. But your last letter reminds me of another motive, which I hope is stronger than science with both of us, and that is the future life which lies before us. Next Sabbath day I shall complete my 70th year. I can hardly think myself so old as I write to you. So much to cheerful spirit, ease, and general health is left to me. And if my memory fails, why it causes that I forget troubles as well as pleasure. And the end is, I am happy and content. I love that. That's beautiful. Uh, which kind of makes my heart like I've, I've literally got goosebumps. You do, you do. Um, it's lovely that I'm grateful for letters um because in so many ways so much of what we know personally about these people that we revere comes from their letters or letters to them 
and I think we should start writing letters. You know, it'd be a very different experience when people look back on our messenger. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Everyone was a fucking weirdo. <laughs> but yeah, and so that was the life of Michael Faraday. And I'd say the one, he had a lot of legacies and stuff. But in uh, 1876, a statue was uh, revealed of him holding an induction ring at the Royal Institution. But this was funded by public subscription. That's incredible. Which, you know, considering an induction ring, do you know what I, most of the public wouldn't have really known what that was, but they were so aware of Faraday and this being his main discovery. This just shows how much of a pop figure he was in science. That's so beautiful. And, like, you know, so many more people turn up science after he lived. You could, there's a change in the trend. He just, he was a really, really amazing guy. Wow, thank you for giving uh, me a story to the name. Yeah, well, I just, I really, I don't know, he, he means a lot to me. And I feel like he's sort of been lost a bit in time. Like, yeah. like he's sort of not got the appreciation he deserves um, in the modern day. People know his name, but they don't know why, which is a little bit sad. No, that's that's incredible. I'm, I'm grateful to know more about him. I think I have a tendency to, you know, know the theories maybe. Well, I mean, that's not true. <laughs> know the names of the theories um, and kind of know the idea of, people like him famous scientists famous academics who have put their name to something but not actually know about them and who they were um and so it's it's really lovely to to hear about a man of principle and a hard-working man and a good man who is behind these things that are so important to kind of every aspect of our lives well, and i thought it was so rasputin was great as the first one like the content of his life was so interesting, but almost because it was scandalous, it was so like, wow, really? She had no nose as well. Everything was just so bizarre. <laughs> um, and yeah, Faraday is a bit of a clean-cut good guy. I mean, I'm sure, you know, history makes villains of us all, but uh, yeah, I don't know. There's, there's nothing I've read that made me go, oh, what a bastard. Yeah. Um, and that's rare these days. It's good to hear just about a good person you know if you listen to the end of the last podcast when i go next week we'll be talking about <laughs> which was michael faraday <laughs> <laughs> which is my little easter egg to any should we do an outro yeah yeah um, and that's all we have time for today <laughs> okay when you say that Why? thank you so much for listening we had fun yeah yeah i learned so many big science words like Faraday <laughs> for comments suggestions or just to say hi you can reach us on Instagram at the Fate Escape Pod or email us at the Fate Escape Podcast at gmail.com and we'll see you next week when we'll be talking about Michael Clum exactly <laughs> bye see you then bye <laughs> 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 oh.